don't know about you, but I noticed that people who are hippies also say that they're Buddhist. A lot of people, not everyone, but a lot. And so I thought it would be really fun to talk with a Buddhist. So today we're going to talk with a Buddhist. She is not only a teacher, but also a student of Buddhism. She's a prison chaplain, an author, and a celebrant. She officiates weddings and funerals and other things uh, as a Buddhist celebrant. And she's the director of the Tara Stone Retreat Center in England. It's near Stonehenge, which is so cool. So we're going to talk all about Buddhism, of course. We'll talk about being right and grief and attachment. We'll talk about cultural appropriation and my resistance to the word play, which is very funny. Check out her website, tarastone.org. I'll link to it for you in the show notes because she teaches meditation and writing. She is so creative and charming and lovely. And I'm just so excited to introduce you to Sherab Chodron. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're listening to the Half Hippie Podcast with Tara Milo. I'm a half hippie, half princess, cat mom, city girl, introvert, and entrepreneur. I don't fit into a box, and you don't either, but I'm committed to making the world a better place through my lifestyle and my business. I love talking about sustainability because I know that you can make a positive difference without giving up the things you love. Here on the Half Hippie Podcast, we're talking about sustainability and entrepreneurship. We'll share stories about what makes us all half hippie and what our other half does to make a positive impact in the world. Let's go. Good. I'm excited to talk to you because I feel like Buddhism became popular or trendy in the 60s and 70s in the West. Like everyone who was a hippie thought they were also a Buddhist. <laughs> does that does that make sense to you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But you study it. Yes. And it's my profession and it's my passion and I study it. What do you think, what do you think draws people to claim Buddhism as their religion if they aren't really a Buddhist or can they, can I just say I'm a Buddhist and, and that's cool? Like, what does that, what does that mean? Yes. And no, on the one hand, um, we have we make the mistake as Westerners of looking, turning our eyes towards Buddhism and applying the same kind of vision to it that we have for what we've grown up in, our Western religions. And actually, it's a completely different set of vectors. And so our way of looking is actually not fit for purpose. So where we think we have, for example, in the West, we, we're used to having this idea of having sort of a God in place who is the creator, does the for example, in Buddhism, it's not about that. Of course, in, in the Buddhist understanding, gods don't create stuff. Gods are something else. Gods are a whole bunch of civil servants that you can um, apply to for help on various projects. So they um, they have discursive thought and they can um, intercede for us and parlay for us and get involved. But they're, they're not anything to do with creation. Yeah, uh, and and creation is and enlightenment is something that happens in the human is a potential of the human mind, and that is a a great thing, and that is actually potentially 
Buddhahood is a capacity above that of godliness. So there's no worship of gods. No, no, there's yeah. no worship of gods. I mean, you make offerings. People make offerings to them, which is different. And also there's there's this very free and easy sort of rummaging around in each other's drawers of gods. You know, if you're a Buddhist in India, you might well ask a Hindu goddess like Lakshmi to help you with the, uh, you know, material abundance or, um, and there isn't, it's not so um, sectarian that there isn't the sense of like, this is religion. This is the edge of it. And you can't encroach to that. It's just this very amorphous thing where there's um, many people practice bits of it or, or sort of are it. It's almost like that's the, the water that they swim in rather than this formal thing that they do. Having said that, to be a Buddhist in a serious way is not something you can just be. It's something, it's a practice and it involves having a teacher that will, you know, point things out to you about how your mind is developing. And those that's therefore becomes a bit of a discipline, which again is different from what we used to in the West. Our religion is this thing where we gather as a tribe and we go and bear witness once a week yeah. without doing any work on ourselves at all. You know, it's just a whole different thing. It's like compare. It's not comparing like with like. Right. So you could be a Christian or some kind of Western religion, and then also Buddhist. Yes. Yeah. In the in the spirit of the half hippie, you yeah. can absolutely. <laughs> you can be. You can. You can be a Christian and apply Buddhist thinking to it. Um, I think to a degree, nobody's going to get upset about that. But ultimately, being a Buddhist is is a sort of quite a disciplined thing with, with, with a degree of engagement. But lots of people accept aspects of Buddhist philosophy that they like, don't they? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think are the aspects that people like or that are drawn to the most? Initially, people come towards Buddhism uh, because of a few things like the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. uh, who's like this cartoon teddy bear llama for us all there's almost a sort of fetishization that we have around that sort of figure Mm -hmm. and the idea also that of um, reducing stress and becoming more calm that Mm -hmm. is the universal assumption about what buddhism is oh we'll do that and be so calm Mm -hmm. and it might be that people are like that but it's just a it's a byproduct it's not the actual point yep I remember I said that to you once and you're like, that's not what it is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a fundamentalist. I'm sorry. No, I love that because we, we have these ideas and about Buddhism. And so I'm glad you're straight, straightening me out. (laughs) Frankly, I had the same ones. I had all the same ones. Mm -hmm. What do you think is something less attractive about Buddhism or more challenging for people? that they don't realize when they claim they're a Buddhist and then you go, oh, but you should be doing this thing or that thing. And they, they aren't, or. I think uh, actually having a a teacher, having a close relationship with a teacher that gets to know them and points out things because there is this, people have muddied Buddhism with sort of new age flim flam and sort of those little sayings that go, around Facebook every day, which um, very often tend to dumb things down and also let people off the hook very easily. Mm-hmm. And I think the important thing about a relationship with a teacher is that 
somebody who can be very honest with you. And so you, you, you have to work hard to find a teacher you can really trust to, to have that kind of sway of you. And it's not, it's not, you know, it's very easy to become entranced by gurus in the in the sort of magic and the fine temples and it's not about those things at all as you can imagine it's not about that not about the trappings and in the west especially in the america actually there's a lot of that there's a lot of very fine temples with lots of money behind it which gives a lot of entertainment and distraction yeah that's different to having the real but the real raw experience of a relationship with a teacher which is one of complete trust and you know humbly looking at one's shadow uh, to understand to understand the workings of the mind and the another thing that people sometimes misconceive about Buddhism is also really really complex there's 89,000 teachings that the Buddha left us and yeah it can be very complicated but I've got to say I don't think there's anything better to put your energy towards in this lifetime than straightening out your mind. And it's the best thing you can do for everyone else in your world too. How do you know if you've straightened out your mind? It's an ongoing process. Yeah. I mean, it's a lifetime's work, isn't it? And, and maybe more, <laughs> maybe longer, but it's, but it's, I think what, you know, you start doing that kind of thing and you get more awareness, don't you gradually have, uh, and so you don't, after a time, you don't automatically jump in to situations imagining that your thoughts are telling you the truth, for example. Yeah. Is that one of the ideas? I've I've heard something about don't believe everything you think. And mm. I love that quote. Is that something? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's the mind is creating the illusion of us being here. And everything that we see in terms of consciousness we only, we only experience a fraction of what actually is possible to experience in the universe because that's all we've needed to experience for our survival. So we only see a small amount, we only smell a small amount, et cetera, you know, compared to the other creatures of the earth or other, or other potentials that exist. So bringing it back to having a real sort of open mind and humility about what this experience is and that... Uh, it's sort of innocence and not knowing, because if we just imagine that the whole of the world is only the things that we can investigate through the limits of our five senses, then we're using a really limited palette for actually a very, very complex situation. Mm-hmm. You know, even to look at the physical body, we know that you know you can't just look at a body and know what it is. You might have to go with microscopes and different lights and different, you know. Um, in order to understand even something as well, something as extraordinary as the body is one of the most extraordinary things there is, the human body. Right. I find that very calming to acknowledge that my mind is so limited because then I just don't have to argue about things. I can be a little easier with myself and with other people and go, yeah, okay, this is how I understand it. And I definitely don't have the full picture I find that reassuring I think it's a very good attitude to have actually and Mm. it would be good if we all thought like that and there are times sometimes when we when we get triggered when even though in the back of our minds we might know that eventually we might be so 
enlightened about it. But there's also a time when we, sometimes we just like to stay in the drama of being right about something. Yes. Like, I'm not ready to go there yet to the nice calm place. I don't want to be free. I want to be right. <laughs> right. <laughs> One thing that I, that we've talked about before that I I found very helpful was a quote from I don't know if I say her name right, Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, "Lean into the sharp points." Mm-hmm. And I found I found that quote at the time that I needed it when I was grieving. My cat had died, and I was so sad, and I was trying not to be so sad. And it was like, no, lean in and feel that and and experience that. And I, I just found that so helpful. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Having been there, that is, it is very important to let those feelings have you for a time and to explore what that is and what else comes up. From a Buddhist point of view, as soon as we fathom this idea that there's a self well then we start to attach to things and in all our attachments is all our pain so of course ultimately we'd want to undo these ideas of the self existing but right now we're just in grief and that deserves its life doesn't it I do feel grief is is a very particular mystery actually that in the West, we could really do with allowing more time and grace around it to, because it's it's sort of an important thing that throws up all sorts, all sorts. And also it, it has such variable shapes and timelines on it that just when you think you're done, it can come right back. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to lean in and learn from those things. But if, if we have the expectation that we're going to be happy and joyful all the time that's not what's going to happen and that's not our job here and that would be boring <laughs> and weird wouldn't it be weird everybody yes. going hey hi yeah great all the time yeah no it's so much more interesting to have life experiences that that you can learn from I find myself coming back to that idea of leaning into the sharp points especially now with you know, the confinement and quarantining and all of that. It's like, you know, you're allowed to be miserable and complain about it a little bit. <laughs> like It's hard. And we don't have to say, oh, I'm doing great. I'm everything is wonderful. Like we, we should all admit that this is hard. Yeah. And allow that yeah. for each other. Yes. Without collapsing in, we are used to sort of therapizing ourselves a bit more. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a fine line between that. There's the learning, but somehow it's important not to become fixated too much on understanding the reasons why things happen, I think, because people often say that, don't they? Like, if I only will understand, then I can move on. Mm-hmm. And that idea comes from this other place of, you know, I'm flawed. I'm flawed, I'm flawed, I'm flawed, and I need to fix it, and I need to find out, and I need to be a better me, and all of this. I don't don't personally hold to that. I think we we have a sort of great effulgent perfection that we've no idea about, and we just get really obscured by all our thinking. Is that a form of attachment, like needing to know why something happened? 
Yes. I mean, all of it's attachment, isn't it? The first thought of I is attachment, mm. since there is no self. And you, there is no terror, is there? You know, we could take it down to her constituent parts and we could place her, her hair on this pile and her, you know, nose over here. But the nose is made of various aggregates of other things. And when we really sort of go through and sift it all out, we can't find terror anywhere. Yeah. But you're going to blow my mind if you say things like that. <laughs> so what does that mean? Like, what's the point? If Tara doesn't exist, what's the point of me and what I do in my life? There's a part of that which is, of course, particular to the person that I can't answer for you to do with the things that you feel impelled towards. Um, but I think under reducing the three the three poisons to some extent is part of the purpose and the poisons are um, ignorance, anger and avarice and sort of all the others come from those and they are, when we do this, then we attach this idea of the self but in fact it's getting free of the self that gives us the possibility of enlightenment. So, but yet everything we do constantly takes it's like the body um, is on, on the one hand, has this potential of this divine experience of enlightenment or nirvana. And the very body sort of has this, the density to make it somehow plug into all this other stuff that doesn't matter at all. Mm. And it's this, this conduit between these things from the he heavenly might put people off it, but I don't mean it heavenly in the traditional sense. I mean in the enlightenment sense, um, to the sort of very mundane, cruddy stuff. I feel that that's the body. It does that. It's able to animate into, into that kind of activity, but it takes us away from the greater truth. And it's, it really is a far greater truth. It's like we stand on a, on a tiny splinter and we imagine it to be the whole cosmos while we stand here being human on this world. And there's this much bigger, more profound, realer thing that we keep ourselves away from by constantly worrying about organizing our socks and taking our kids to school and, you know, right. the normal stuff of the relative existence. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that idea of attachment is the one that I struggle with the most, but only in certain areas, like I'm attached to my pets without hesitation mm. because when I lose one, it's so devastating, mind, body, soul, everything. So that's one that I just, I'm not going to give up. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, I have pets. I have three children. There's a stray sheep that wandered in here, a stray dog that's wandered in here. You know, I do understand. So I, I must say, I sort of operate this on two levels, the relative and the absolute, where in relative terms, I'm not proposing to give up on them. But I think one of the things that I would bring to it is that our attachment doesn't make us more loving. And one of the exercises we do sometimes in meditations is to um, deliberately like increase the attachment we have for things or people we don't like and decrease like on a giant mixing deck you can imagine somebody you're indifferent to in front of you like, yeah. uh, and then on one side somebody who really 
pissed you off somewhere. Yeah. And then on this side, somebody you adore and, yeah. and notice like the difference. And then somehow to, to make an equivalence between th- the three. Wow. Okay. Imagination. Because when we, when we love so hard on people, it's um, this, this quality of attachment comes from a personality that, and that wants something. Mm-hmm. It wants them in, you know, to be well. It wants them to be alive. It wants them to be yeah. responsive to my needs and various ways. So actually what's happening there is not that we love them, is that we are always trying to mine them for something, oh, for this yeah. stuff, this stuff, this stuff. And whereas, of course, love is this, is this condition that we become rather than being anything to do with them. And then everyone else just gets in the way of love, you know, happily, because yeah. it's who you are rather than anything that they're doing. So the so we love them because they're an extension of our ego. Mm-hmm. My kids, my kids. I prefer my kids to your kids, say, or whatever, sure, you know. Sure. Uh, um, which is natural and human and part of being a mammal on the one hand. Yeah. But it's less loving actually than detachment, which is so difficult to accept. It is. It is. I joked with my husband one time about having my now ex-husband about having loving non-attachment with him. (laughs) Yeah. I can hundred percent relate. Yeah. 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 And he, he didn't like that because it meant (laughs) that I love the dog and the cats more than him. And I'm like, that's, (laughs) that's what it is. Yeah, and it's very easy to. I mean, dogs and cats. You know, they're such good teachers about this. And actually, mm-hmm. cats probably better because of their their sort of detached acceptance without yes. constantly getting hooked in and needy. Yes, um, cats and dogs are such good teachers. Yeah. When uh, when I read that some quote from Buddha or something about not being attached. And I think it may have specifically been about pets. I'm so feisty. And I was like, no, this cat was incredible. You would have been attached to her. She, <laughs> yeah. And I was so angry and fighting against that idea. But yeah, it is natural, isn't it, to be to be that way. But it just there's a warning in it, which is that when we have these attachments, then there's something to defend, isn't there? Yeah. And then it's like. Cat, you and me against the world. And then we've got our, our cult. And, and then you, me, and my friends. And then that's it. And that, so we are, when we do that, then we're separating from the others, aren't we? And make, yeah. making ourselves more important. Just as, I mean, you, you can be argued that things like, I don't know, buying local, which seems like a very good idea in terms yeah. of e- ecologically. But on the other hand, there's also the thought of like, well, is is it appropriate to favor the people close to me in my village mm-hmm. over the much poorer people over there who are, you know, scrabbling around to grow and sell to the yeah. more affluent world. Uh, so uh, there's just some things that are not straightforward. Yeah. That's a good point about favoring local, because I know that's kind of a hippie value in terms of sustainability because it doesn't travel as far, but also, you know, those poor people in other countries who are growing things or making things for us, they're still not earning enough money because the boss is 
taking our money and only giving them pennies on the dollar. So ugh, that's a tough one. Yeah. It, it, and we can't fully audit the whole system because we don't know if our neighbor at the farm shop, what they do with their profits, if they yep. put them to things that we approve of or or not. And it's not our it's not our business. You know, I yeah. just I only say these things because it's very one can become simplistic and sort of moralizing about what is the right thing for people to do. But it's actually not very clear cut, is it? Because there's so much nuance in it about when you look into the into the detail of it. And so how can we ever evaluate what the most compassionate action is? I mean, we try and grow a lot of our own veg here, but what does that mean? We're not giving business to the local farm shop and they have kids to feed. So. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. No, so. <laughs> well, tell us about your space. You have a retreat center. Yes. So Tara Stone is occupies a what used to be a bunch of farm buildings so old stone farm buildings a few hundred years old beautiful and it's in the English countryside quite near Stonehenge and Salisbury and very beautiful area it's a Buddhist center but it's also very quite well it's specifically in a particular Buddhist Vajrayana lineage it's also quite broad in that it's got an arty bent because I have an arty bent uh-huh. and we do things like well in normal times we do things like pop-up dinner gigs and have lots of things to support the arts and music and also we have something called piecemeal where we invite people from lots of different backgrounds to come together and break bread together and that's something we started particularly after the Brexit vote in order to foster a bit of acceptance and kindness between people mm-hmm. um so that's a really international thing piecemeal and and also sort of demographically diverse you know so that you've got the hippie and the doctor and it's a very half hippie situation piecemeal <laughs> so where we where we yes so because I think when people eat together so sometimes you might have the Bulgarians come and they might bring Bulgarian food with them or whatever and then we get, it's lots to talk about and Hearing each other's stories makes the walls come down, you know, and, mm-hmm. and acceptance grows in that space. Uh, I hope we can be able to do that again. So that's, and and apart from that, of course, we do um, lots of stuff to do with meditation, which is our sort of fundamental touchstone. And also people come and stay here. There's a cottage one can rent. And sometimes there are rooms, depending on who else is living here at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people come here to work on a work exchange. And we do programs for writers and also play. Play has become a really important part of everything here. Because I feel that play... Plays, it's a, first of all, it's a primal human need. That just is. It's on that on that scale mm. but we lose it as we grow up especially women and it's a very powerful way of bringing us into sort of awareness and presence so it works very well with meditation and things like that even though not to take away from full throttle buddhist meditation which is quite a sort of structured thing but there's this other thing around the edges that we do in order to 
help people feel more connected to themselves and to each other mm. and feel lighter and more joyful. And the, the idea is that if people, if people feel good, rather than sort of bullying themselves into, I must do more meditation, I must do all these things I've set myself to do, no one wants to be, it's not motivating. <laughs> whereas, <laughs> you know, so if you, whereas play puts you in a, um, in a state that's joyful mm. and fun and light and meaningful as well. It's not silly plays. And we're not talking about juggling or circus skills here or anything competitive or sporty, anything like that. It's really sort of very gentle and sincere and authentic, but fun and light. And from that space, there's a lot of creativity and a lot of potential for what people want to do. And they can really find, it's like a sigh of relief. And they can find what they really want to do and go there. Rather, whereas before, there's sort of like this, the gates of hell are closed around oneself sometimes. Like, I can't, I've got so much to do. I think I might resist that idea of play a little bit, which is funny. Oh, please say more. Well, I don't think I play very much. Like I, mm. I do... I work, I, I waste my time on Instagram and TikTok and all these things, just consuming the fun that other people are having, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if I do anything playful. I try to, okay. Maybe being creative and doing silly things. Like I make kombucha and then I took my kombucha outside and did a photo shoot (laughs) with my bottles of kombucha. Is it just silly things that are more freeing and a little bit mindful I don't know but yeah that sounds enjoyable I saw some of that on your TikTok that it was mm. it was gorgeous your kombucha really took it to another level with fruits in it and things yes yeah? it's yes. so good so is it just allowing yourself to be a little bit silly or what what's something mm. that that you can do that's play that counts as play I play with oh. my cat but that's for her yeah I think then that would not be in the category play is by definition something that I cannot answer what is it you know because the part of the point is it is that it's not being restricted to like this is maths this is English this is French and this is play so now please put the block on top of the other block and make sure it's straight like if you watch children they know And the reason that we have such a long childhood, unlike many animals, is that we need many more years of play to learn all the grown-up stuff that we then learn. And they do it by just coming without any story of how it could should be. And they'll come to their little, you know, to the cardboard box or to the pebble on the beach and just be present to it Mm. with innocence and with fascination without a story of like I have to do this thing now called play yeah okay um where where immediately there's restriction you know so sort of to freeing up so I wonder if when you say play for me it's just silliness because I love silliness it's some it can be silliness but you know it's so beautiful isn't it and but it can be silliness but it can also be really play can be quite sincere and it can be dancing and things like that actually one of the things I'm doing at the moment is I'm dancing every day with people around the world on zoom 
<laughs> I resist that so much. I am not dancing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, to be fair, I just, you know, I, I wanted to do it for exercise and because it seems like the most enjoyable form of yeah. physical jerks, really. So, but it also, you know, it's been really playful. For example, we've done kitchen dancing with kitchen implements and what that's fun skillets for guitars and brooms for you know Fred Astaire style broom dances and dances of the veil with tea towels and all sorts of things but you you know in a way I can't describe what it is because to some extent these things have to emerge very spontaneously from what's happening and and the enjoyment of it and and the sort of also of course one can do that alone one can just come into the everyday situation that you have there with total new curiosity mm-hmm. as if you were a child discovering your apartment for the first time yeah but when we do it together and it's amazing what we've developed in terms of the potential even on zoom because normally these things are done in person but actually we've got a whole bunch of stuff that that now works incredibly well on Zoom. It had to be adapted, of course, and changed, but there are tools. People have had the most amazing experiences of incredible fun, enormous connection, really loving, authentic spaces opening up between them, and just sort of dropping the the whole armory that we carry around of defence, because... Mm -hmm. What are we defending? You know, just the crumbling fort of the self. Yes. Under that, there's all this sweetness and mischief that, yeah, silliness. Silliness is, is maybe that's it. Yeah, silliness I can go for. But, mm-hmm. man, my brain is fighting this idea of play. What do you think of when you hear play? I don't even know what to think of. I think that's the problem. But when I see people dancing, like that sounds fun, but it feels so vulnerable. That might be it. It feels very vulnerable. Yes. Well, it's, you can't just have a bunch of people, for example, on a Zoom call who've never met each other, mm-hmm. arrive into that situation say, no, don't, you know, it, people would be very put off and much too vulnerable so you have to get there by very gentle degrees of building up but gradually there's this there's this other language and there's also the language that of you know connection as you'll appreciate about things like being seen on camera and being prepared to be not sitting in the shadows against the wall on the sofa but up here where you can see me and you can see my eyes yeah and I can see yours. And then we build trust that way because we're in this little boat together. It's very liberating and Mm. joyful. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) These are not good examples because this is an extended thing that happens, but yes. Yeah, of course. But I like the, like dancing with things in the kitchen. I don't know if I would do that. I mean, I guess I feel like I would do that alone. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Like everybody does kitchen dancing on their own. Yes. Right? I mean, who's never done that? But and and I and I do that every day as well, dancing on my own. But I have got a number of friends. And I wouldn't ask every friend I have. Uh-huh. But, you know, you know the ones that you feel that you could do that with. Um, so 
you know, dance in the kitchen, have a chat, have a catch up, maybe eat together yeah, or cook together. Yeah. It is funny though, just speaking of the kitchen, I've been listening to an audio book that's like some, I don't know, sexy romance thing, kind of similar to Bridgerton. And it's so funny and it's just not my normal kind of book to hear somebody describe sex and just over the top descriptions of it. It's really funny. So I listen to it as I'm doing the dishes or as I'm cooking, whatever. And then in the morning I come downstairs and I'm putting the dishes away and I'm like, someone was having sex in my kitchen last night because that energy is still there. (laughs) (laughs) This is singing in the air. Love that. Yeah. Well, actually listening to something like that, that isn't your normal genre. And so just allowing yourself to do that is also quite playful, isn't it? Because it feels like an indulgence of some kind. Yes. So so I think it it is playful because it's more permissive. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. <laughs> mm. I haven't seen Bridgerton, but I, I just see the name of it everywhere. Oh, it's fun. It's Is very it? fun. Yes, I definitely yeah. recommend it. Getting back to the idea of Buddhism and hippies and all of that, sometimes I see, mostly from the younger generation, kind of an overcorrection of political correctness where they think white people shouldn't be Buddhist because it didn't, because it's an Eastern religion and and we're not allowed to be that. Have you seen that? Uh, no, but it doesn't surprise me because it's in, it's in the domain of all sorts of sort of cultural appropriation. Yes, and exactly. Yeah. So I, I, at the risk of really sounding uninformed I really am baffled by this idea of cultural appropriation because I think to be human is to be in a constant state of fluxing cultural appropriation Mm. you know and where do we draw the line like if I use my grandmother's recipe and she was Hungarian Mm -hmm. am I am I allowed to do that or not um or if a person of colour dyes their ringlets blonde, are they appropriating from the Scandinavians? Yeah. Or, well, it's, I think it's ridiculous, actually. Yeah. It's just natural that all this stuff has moved around the world at all times through history. Mm. All knowledge has moved around and it is built up of accretions of past knowledge. So you, if you dug into any of those things, they're not real anyway. They're not, they don't have any substance of their own. Like this, I have this thing that is Tibetan Mm -hmm. or let's say I have this thing that is Northern Indian from the time of the Buddha, this, this idea, this practice, this book, this writing, this sutra, whatever it is. Well, but that came over with the Aryans from Persia a thousand years earlier. So what do I do about that? You know, were they appropriating it from the Persians? The same with language. I mean, should we not say things that come from French anymore? Should the French no longer say weekend? Especially as Buddhism is more of a science of mind than, you know, a cultural. I, if people want to wear 
stuff or dangle Tibetan brocades on their walls or why not? Yeah. I can't find a reason. Why not? I know. As long as I don't say I made it up myself. It's yeah. appreciation. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like meeting that that's been, especially when we have history of obliterating other cultures. Right. Then there's, it's quite nice to bring bring things out into the open, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I, I have a very mixed European sort of goulash in terms of my own DNA. Mm-hmm. I don't have... I'm not from one country, so it would be impossible to function if I was trying to. I think that sort of thinking leads to the Aryan race dominating again, frankly. Ah. It's the first seeds of that kind of thinking of um, everybody sort of creating their own little hermetically sealed thing and then comparing, competing and bragging about who's his best. I mean, no. Yeah. I'd rather be inclusive. Mm-hmm. What yeah, do you think? That makes sense to me. It is. Yeah. When you take it to the very end, it does mm. become an issue of superiority, which it, it shouldn't be. Let's, yeah. let's appreciate ever, each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Who would ever want to do that, to make mm. themselves better than somebody else? Mm-mm. Again, that's boring. Like I can learn from other people who yeah. do things differently, not better or worse, but just different. It's better. Yeah to be different I mean I I recognize that I'm not in it's a conversation that's very American the one about cultural appropriation as well Mm -hmm. and I know that I don't have any knowledge about that conversation over there so I'm just saying it from my European perspective so feel free to tell me if there's something I'm missing I think it's also generational I think the younger generation is more likely to say things like that, that being a Buddhist is cultural appropriation, which it just mm-hmm. isn't. But they do, I have seen that, mm-hmm. like someone was talking about meditation and they were like, "That you can't do that. <laughs> what? Oh, for heaven's sake. You can't meditate <laughs> because other people meditated first? That makes no sense. <laughs> no, and, and actually there's a tradition of meditation in every culture. Every mm-hmm. culture, every spiritual tradition has got it, whether it's from sweat lodges or ancient Egyptian mystery schools or the Christian mystics, the desert fathers. Heavens, what do you think Jesus went and did in the wilderness for 40 days? Yeah, of course he meditated. There was nothing else to do. Nothing else. <laughs> you can only braid sage into a breastplate so many times. Right? <laughs> I read a great book. One of my very favorite books of all time was called Lamb. And it was about what Jesus did in those, in the gap. We have a big gap in his life. And this book and other books say that he went and studied Buddhism and he studied other religions and that and brought it back into Christianity, which is cool. Yeah. I love that too. I, I know you mean, I haven't ever tackled any scholars on it. I'm a bit scared too, but I will do when I have more courage. We we can allow our, ourselves to learn from each other without saying that we're stealing from each other. We're just learning. Yeah, that's it's a beautiful way to think of it. Exactly, mm-hmm. we're learning from each other and accepting. This is we need more of that. Mm-hmm. But for too long, we've been too separate and too close to each other's potentials. Like let's let's share it all. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, as a Buddhist, are you optimistic about the future of our world? Um, I think, the, do you mean the world in terms of the planet itself? Yes. Normally, yes. I talk about in terms of the planet, sustainability, climate change, what we're doing to the planet. It would be great if we would put less of our hopes in material stuff, I've got mm. to say, mm-hmm. because they don't have any inherent nature that can help or make us happy in any way. So that would be my personal axe of mind. Ultimately, I do think the planet will probably shake us off quite easily. And I think the pandemic's a, a good illustration of how easily it could be done. Yeah. It wouldn't take many more mutations to wipe out a lot of us. Right. So I'm not too worried about the planet itself, but I, mm. at the same time, strongly wish that people didn't didn't invest all their energy into the pursuit of stuff because none of that stuff ever, ever, ever brings them any sustained happiness. Mm. It doesn't seem compassionate, but I'm not really prepared to sort of moralize too much about people should be compassionate. It's sort of not even my business to do that. In Buddhist in the Buddhist macrocosm, the understanding is that this thing, these things go to sort of massive sort of turnings of the cosmic wheel, if you like, where all of us beings are going through all sorts of different lifetimes of experience and all the creatures and all the plants. And if you're, you know, and possibly all the rocks and it's not in the Buddhist view, we don't give sentience to plants and rocks, but other cultures do like the Jains and um, Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. I heard a Lakota teacher talking recently about the spirit of every single pebble, et cetera. And I can, I can really buy into that because why would we think that we, that sentience is only to do with how we perceive things through these five senses when plants can look after their young, can have banking systems, can grow towards light, can do have a sort of co- um, a consciousness of a, of a different kind, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, I feel the planet will be fine. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's this like this great big factory turnover of evolutionary processes where from a Buddhist point of view, um, all of these different kinds of consciousnesses are moving up and down like a giant snakes and ladders board of karmic uh, accretions and deductions where you know we might sort of climb up to the supreme abodes and fall down to the hell realms or live as a human being which is quite near the bottom of the stack mm-hmm. um, but there are worse places to be this is in the sort of full-on buddhist um, buddhist theories of old so it's a bit like you know when you see those like those toasters in hotels or those things that have sausages where they're sort of rotating horribly and they're going through this thing and these revolutions where the stuff comes up like a mill through the water as well where and so and so lives and worlds and universes expand and contract and come and go and there's these surges and this falling back that is way bigger than just us that in Buddhist terms, that's been going on for billions of years across billions of universes. And of course, that sits pretty reasonably with what physics is saying now. 
mm-hmm. rather than, let's say, the original Christian view of the world started in 4000 BC. So that's where I go. It's hard. It's a bigger story than that, but I'm trying to make a capsule version of how there is a bigger a bigger rise and fall, a bigger tidal wave of things going in the universe as it contracts and expands or it expands. Is it inevitable or can we make a difference if humans acknowledge and realize and make changes on our consumption and our emissions and all of that? I don't know. I think we will make it more comfortable for ourselves Mm -hmm. and for the animals I'm not convinced that that is all that matters. I think, you know, plant life is very underrated. We absolutely need them for everything we do. We wear them. We have a cup of coffee ground from a plant. We have, you know, everything we do all day long is, and yet we, of course, we favor the life forms that are like us because that is also part of our an extension of, an, of our own ego yeah. that we would take care of. For example, we take care of big mammals more favorably than we do small insects. Right. Yeah. Unless you're something like a Jane. Whereas in Tibet, they'll tend to go for, if we're going to have a great big soup and we don't have trees and vegetables at our high plateau, then we'd rather kill one animal mm. than many small animals to make a shrimp soup. And so there's sort of different logics that apply in different times and places that, again, I sort of have to meet with sort of curiosity and acceptance rather than jumping in to say they should or shouldn't. I don't know because it's too complicated. We can make it more comfortable for ourselves with less consumption. And in terms of the human possibility of what we're here for, all this time that we're chasing stuff, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as I like to say, <laughs> and and not going towards what we should be going towards, which is enlightenment, if, any, if there's any should about it. Mm. And, and then that's almost like a different endeavour. The business of looking after resources, I feel that's very much for our own interest and the interest of life forms close to us mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily take into account. And maybe it does. Because, you know, it'd be nice if we stopped mining so much priceless stuff out of the earth, wouldn't it? It would seem nice. But if we're going to give credence to the idea that trees and rocks and things are as valuable as anything else, it would be nice if we could leave them in peace. But maybe I'm being too folksy about it. Maybe there isn't a... I've noticed when I've had some big meditation experiences that all these sorts of ideas of moral high grounds that I've had have have sort of fallen away Mm. as too pedestrian and too small Mm -hmm. in in their scope to what is really going on in, in the sort of universal sense that probably none of it will really matter. That's maybe getting too zoomed out. I don't know. I know this is all so heavy. I could talk to you about this forever. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I've just eaten, you know, a hash brownie or something because my mind is also sort of fizzing and it's popping. Going. Thinking, what is going on? Because I don't also like, oh man, you know. <laughs> and honestly, 
Buddhist theory mostly is much more sort of down to the specifics than than this. But I don't know. It's a bit off trend to say things like this, isn't it? But yes, but yeah. it's harder to seek enlightenment than it is to go and go for a shopping trip and buy a new car and, you know, do those things that make us feel a little bit good in the moment. But yes, it is, it is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. There was a death row prisoner who said that doing Vipassana retreat was harder than being on death row Mm -hmm. because it was that hard to face his own mind. Right. People will do anything to distract themselves yep that is what all this consumption is about it's about distracting ourselves to hell yep. so we don't have to sit and face the silence in our own head mm-hmm. which turns out to be actually the most beautiful most exquisite experience you can have in mm. in human life so it's so sad that people turn away from it yeah it is hard though i did a a four, I think it was a four day silent meditation retreat um, in Canada years and years and years ago. And the longer we were silent, the louder the voices in my head became. And it was like, oh, is anyone else? It's so loud in here. <laughs> but it was really, really powerful and and healing. Yeah. It's very good for you, silence. Very good. Let me see. Normally I ask if you're optimistic about the future of climate change, which I don't think we have a, a solid answer on that. I, well, the climate is changing and mm-hmm. the planet will sh- will shrug us off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope it happens fast. I don't want a long drawn out dystopian novel situation. <laughs> I want it to be quick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, it looks like it will. It will be if this current thing is anything to go by. It, it wouldn't take long, would it? As I said, if a few more mutations and um, yeah, we're all toast. Yeah, but I don't want it to be so fast that my cat is left in the apartment with no one to take care of her. Like there, <laughs> damn straight. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we just do our best and do things that that we feel are ethical for ourselves. I don't, I don't even know. Like I feel good about doing that and he can do whatever he wants with his money. Like I feel good about buying from the farmer. That's the juice, isn't it? And in Mm -hmm. a way that's the play, the playfulness Mm -hmm. is that you get to enjoy this thing that aligns with your value. And that's lovely. That doesn't mean that it's a moral high ground. It means that you Mm -hmm. like it and that's valuable you as a human being and you know you can find lots of other human beings that will agree with you because it seems good for lots of us but that's also there'll be people thinking other things looking for agreement on other things I'm not saying against what you're doing but just about completely different subjects yeah there'll be people who gather to do because they think Buddhism is good or people who gather to think pastry is good or whatever Okay, that's beautiful. Is there something you wish you were doing better? Is there, do you feel guilty about anything? Yes, much. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I feel, gosh, I mean, I do work pretty hard and 
I always feel guilty that I should be working harder and then also feeling guilty that I should be playing more. Um, so all of that, I, you know, at the moment here at Torrestone, there's fewer people than ever before. And of course I've turned off the heating in various places, but I still have the sense of there's this great big spaceship of rocks that I'm living in flying through space and, you know, just trying to make sure that, that we reach out from here to give people the opportunity to do things that will reduce their suffering. Mm. And that'll be stuff to do with their minds. So sometimes, you know, whether we even give that away at times, like I'm doing on the, you know, courses coming up or whatever, then, then that's my jam really is that, that the real main problem we have as humans is the unquestioned mind. Mm. So whatever I can do towards that. But I feel, again, never doing enough, never doing enough. And am I opening my house up to refugees? I mean, I keep meaning to, and I was a refugee, but yet I don't have refugees sleeping all over the floor of this big room. So, yeah, I can find find that guilt. Mm -hmm. That pops into my mind sometimes too. Well, I admire the work that you're doing and that you, that's your mission is to help alleviate suffering. So I'm glad that you're doing that in whatever way you can, whether it's in the physical space or on Zoom. And we we're working together to get some of that stuff online. And I'm so glad you're doing that because it's really beautiful work. Well, thank you very much for your help with that because it makes it possible in ways that are not. Well, thank you for talking with me. This was so fun. My mind is blown. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you too. I want your kombucha recipe and I'll give you my firesider recipe if you like. Oh yes. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for having me on. It's been really fun to talk. Ooh, that blew my mind a little bit and it was super fun. I hope you loved it too. So like I said in the beginning, I'm going to link to her website so you can check it out. It's tarastone.org. It's a whole retreat center. So if you ever find yourself near Stonehenge in England, definitely stay there. Oh my gosh, that would be so cool. So she teaches meditation and all kinds of Buddhist studies and writing online through her website and you can just soak up all of her wisdom. She's absolutely incredible. Sign up for her newsletter, all of that good stuff. But I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It was so fun. I could talk to her forever and ever and ever and ever. (laughs) She's just so lovely. So thanks for joining us and I'll catch you soon.